Thanks so much for being with us this morning. If you do have a copy of God's Word, open to Matthew chapter 5. And this week we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you remember lunchtime as a kid when you went to school? Maybe you are a kid and you're like, yeah, I do remember Friday. Do you remember lunchtime as a kid? I remember lunchtime as a kid. Do you remember never getting enough food from your school, right? I see guys going like, yeah. I just feel like I never got full at lunch as a kid. And then you get bigger and you go to high school and you think, I'm, I'm never going to get full. And I remember my dad saying, you, I'm not giving you more money, so you just keep adding on to the account and getting double portion every time you go to lunch. But somehow in high school, I did get full because I remember my junior year had fourth period lunch and fifth period AP psychology and slept right through Miss Barco's AP psychology. I apologize, Miss Barco, if you watch this. So somehow I did get full. But do you remember as a kid not being full at lunchtime? When you were little, it probably didn't matter. You probably just had all the energy it, you needed anyways, and you would just go, go, go. But what about now? Do you remember the last time you were hungry? You ever wake up in the middle of the night feeling like you're going to die of thirst? <laughs> you ever have that? You wake up and you're like, I need a big glass of, for me, it's Gatorade. Gatorade is the perfect midnight drink. But those feelings of hunger and thirst, Jesus is capitalizing on those common human, every human being knows what it means to feel hungry. Every human being knows what it means to feel thirsty. And Jesus is capitalizing on that. that He goes, I know everyone knows what this feels like to hunger and to thirst. And I'm gonna capitalize on that to teach you something about what we should really hunger and thirst for. And he uses those feelings to tell us that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. So this morning, the first thing we're gonna look at is the form of righteousness. Because maybe you hear that word righteousness and you think what I thought when I first opened the text this week. Great, a word that most people hate and is used negatively. Oh, you just think you're more righteous than everyone else. What does righteous mean? What is righteousness? Well, there was a pastor in the 1900s. He pastored right in the city center of London. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he pastored Westminster Chapel. And he actually, if you've ever heard of G. Campbell Morgan, who has written a lot of commentaries and written things, he pastored there before Lloyd-Jones, and he invited Lloyd-Jones to kind of be an assistant pastor and then Uh, Morgan backed up, and then uh, Lloyd-Jones pastored there for almost 30 years in the shadow of Buckingham Palace right there in London. And if you're thinking about the time, he started pastoring there in 1939, so he pastored through World War II in the heart of London. And maybe you've made the connection in your mind that to see the bombings that are happening in Ukraine, it brings a lot of people mentally back to the blitz in World War II, what happened to England and London, specifically such a major city experiencing such incredible bombings. Well, there's this one story of Lloyd-Jones. They called him the doctor because he actually was a medical doctor before God called him into the ministry. So the doctor, and one Sunday morning, they're preaching, uh, they're having their service, they're praying, they're singing together, and it's in the middle of one of his prayers, and a bomb hits in the street just yards from their front door. So close, in fact, that the whole congregation is actually covered in white ash and dust from the bomb. So he paused for a minute, and I think he recounted afterwards, everybody thought, how did you do that with such poise? And he said, in the moment, he realized, what am I going to do, send everyone out 
That's only going to cause more panic. So he paused for a moment, finished his prayer, and proceeded to preach his entire sermon. This is a man who knew what warfare was like. And here's what Lloyd-Jones had to say years later as he was writing on this verse in Righteousness. He knew what wartime was. Pastoring in London during World War II. And here's what he says about righteousness. If you're anxious about the state of the world and the threat of possible wars, then I assure you that the most direct way of avoiding such calamities is to observe words such as these, which we are now considering. Blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If every man and woman in this world knew what it was to hunger and thirst after righteousness, there would be no danger of war. Here is the only real way to peace. And this is a man who knew quite the opposite of peace, lived through it, led his church through it. So why would he say that? What is it about righteousness that can bring peace? What is it about righteousness that our, our Lord says we ought to hunger and thirst after it? Well, I think there's two elements of righteousness that can help us understand what it is. And the first is just the word righteous. There's a little word in there that if you pull it out, it can help you understand the meaning of it. And it's the word right. To be righteous is in some way, maybe it's an oversimplification kind of, but to be right. To be righteous is to be in the right. The word in scripture means to conform, to conform to some sort of standard or to be to put right. Here's what Timothy Keller says. He says to be righteous means to be presentable, to pass inspection in the eyes of another in such a way that it's pleasing to them that they might look at us and say that we are right in their eyes. So we have the word righteous, but then the other thing that can help us understand righteousness is if we look at God and righteousness. Okay, Psalms is a massive book and 150 prayers. It's an incredible prayer book. It's an incredible book of scripture. But did you know in the 150 chapters, the word righteous or righteousness shows up 127 times? in 123 different psalms. Sometimes it's talking about the righteous people, but often it's talking about God and his righteousness. Listen to just a couple of these. Psalm 9-8 says that God judges the world with righteousness. Psalm 7-11 says he's a righteous judge. Psalm 48-10 says his right hand is filled with righteousness. Psalm 33 verse 5 says that he loves righteousness. Fred Zaspel is a theologian who's written books, and he says that God is the essence and the standard of what is right. God is the essence and standard of what is right. Herman Bovink was a Dutch theologian 130 years ago, and he says, in the case of God, one cannot conceive of a law that is above him. There is no standard to which God is conforming to. There is no standard above God. One cannot conceive of a law that's above him and to which he would have to conform for his will is the supreme law. Psalm 71, 19 says, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? So when we see these two things, God is the righteous one. And to be righteous means we're conforming to something. So righteousness means that we are conforming to God and his will. Righteousness means we're conforming to God and his will. So then we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. We've seen the form of it, that it's God. God is the form. He is the standard. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? How can we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, that leads us to our second point this morning, which is the famine of righteousness. Do you ever stand in front of your fridge and say, or maybe you hear your kids, you don't want to admit you still do this, and they say, there's nothing to eat. You stand in front of the pantry and you go, there's nothing to eat in this house. I don't do that either, ever. Never stand in front of the fridge and say, there's nothing to eat. And then you go, you want, for us, it's after the kids go to bed and I wander in there because something about the kids being in bed, just, I'm, I'm just get hungry. So I start walk to the fridge and I'm like, man, there's nothing to eat in here. Yeah, I know we went to the grocery store today, but there's nothing really to eat in there right now. And I kind of walk back over, and I'll be honest, when I do it, I'm usually trying to get Carrie to go get some food for us. Sometimes it works, sometimes it So then you go back, and here's what happens, right? You go back and you sit down. About five minutes later, you walk back in there. And I'm not sure what our thinking is, but we open the same fridge and the same pantry, and we get to look in again, like, as if the Holy Spirit dropped Chick-fil-A into our pantry in the five minutes between looking and, and walking back. But you stand in front and you go, there's nothing to eat here. And you're hungry or maybe you're just bored and you stand in front of your fridge or your pantry and there's nothing to eat. And you might really be hungry, but you're not really desperate for food or else you might eat what's in there. You're definitely not starving and you're certainly not experiencing a famine. There's food right before your eyes. But the hunger that Jesus is talking about is a desperate hunger. It's a desperate hunger hunger. And hunger really includes two parts, right? It includes the emptiness and the desire to be filled. The emptiness and the desire to be filled. So in this beatitude, Jesus is inviting us to have a desperate, starving, famine hunger, like the Psalm 42 verses 1 and 2 that says, as a deer pants for flowing streams. That word pant doesn't just mean like, yeah, I could use a little bit of water. Yeah, I'll take a water bottle. No, no, it means like I'm dying of thirst and I need to find a stream or this deer is gonna die. So my soul pants for you, oh God. Desperation in our hunger and thirst. But remember these two parts, our emptiness and our desire to be filled. First, our emptiness. If we're gonna hunger and thirst for righteousness, we must be thoroughly fed up with all other righteousness that's offered to us. And I think that means two things. It means being thoroughly fed up with the world's righteousness. I'll warn you on the front end. We love to amen points like this because it's pointing out. <clears throat> so before we get too cheery as we put the culture down, knowing we're about, <laughs> just know we're gonna turn it right back to our own hearts in just a second. But we must really be thoroughly fed up with the righteousness that the world's offering us. Our culture pursues righteousness whether we know it or not. No matter the worldview, no matter the religion, people have some standard they're trying to conform to and they think others ought to conform to. That's why we have something like cancel culture happening right now. Our world tries to have ethics, tries to say this is right and this is wrong and if you don't conform to this right standard then you ought to be cast out. I mean, hello, have we heard this anywhere? Law, judgment, it's, it's almost like this is baked into every human being's DNA. So no matter how you slice it, all people agree that the world's not right. And as Christians, we look at the world and we say, we also don't see very many people conforming to God and his will. The world is gonna offer us forms of righteousness and say, come on, don't you wanna come con 
conform to this standard or this standard, and we've got to be thoroughly fed up what's offered to us from both the right and the left, please. We've got to be thoroughly fed up with the world around us and its righteousness or lack of it. But we've also got to be thoroughly fed up with our own righteousness. Romans 3.10 says that none is righteous, no, not one. We are unrighteous because we don't conform to God and his will. And that makes us guilty before him because of that. We're made in his image and we're meant to know him and love him supremely. And when we don't, don't, that makes us guilty. We're unrighteous. But the problem is not just our guilt before God. The problem is also our shame because of our guilt. Our shame often leads us to try to cover our unrighteousness. Just as Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. We want to try to cover our guilt and our unrighteousness on our own terms. And when we do that, we're not actually fed up with our, own un, with our own righteousness yet. We actually think we have some sort of righteousness we can salvage. We try to get our own fig leaves, which are really cheap replicas of righteousness. And just like Adam and Eve, when they sinned and they realized they were naked, they went and got fig leaves. And God said, who told you? this? Who told you you were naked? Who told you you should be ashamed of that? They were trying to cover themselves, and that's how we respond to our own righteousness a lot of times. We're trying to cover ourselves when we realize we're unrighteous. We try to find ways of performing and achieving, and a lot of times we're more content to just appear righteous than actually be righteous. And a lot of times that's because of our shame. Our shame tells us You are not acceptable and presentable, and you never will be. If only they knew this about you, they wouldn't love you the way you think they love you. So you better be sure to cover that. If only they knew this part of your story, so don't share that. If only they knew this sin, if only they knew this thing that happened to you, surely they would think you're dirty and untouchable, and they wouldn't want you in there presence or in their church or in their life at all so in our unrighteousness we do stand guilty before God but we also stand ashamed and we want to try to cover ourselves but if we're going to hunger and thirst for the righteousness Jesus is talking about we first have to recognize our emptiness that means boldly saying I'm not righteous the world's not righteous but the second part not just our emptiness but our desire to be filled hunger and thirst. What are we going to do about this famine of righteousness? Well, what does anybody do in a famine? You're hungry. This passage is so tempting just to talk about righteousness and being satisfied, but actually the point of it is not just blessed are those who get righteousness, it's blessed are those who long for it and desire it. So we can't go through this passage just talking about righteousness and just talking about how to get it. We have to talk about the fact that Jesus is blessing, is saying you're flourishing if you desire righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Is the burning passion of your soul to conform to God and his will? When I was a new-ish believer and getting serious about my faith, my late teenage, early 20s, somebody had given me a couple of books. One was by David Platt. It's called Radical. One was by John Piper, and it was called Desiring God. And they both had similar messages of like, 
forsake everything, put God above everything, run hard after him, increase the affections of your soul for God. And that just resonated with me. But have I waned in that desire for God? Have I waned in my affections for God? Do I still hunger and thirst for him now the way I did then? But if we're going to hunger and thirst for that, the other application questions would be, are you done with the cheap replicas of righteousness you've settled for? Or are you still holding out hope trying to salvage these cheap replicas that they might actually offer you some coverage? Are you done trying to merely appear righteous? And are you ready for your real self to be in line with the real God? Do you really desire to be filled in the way that God's going to fill you? Not filled on your own terms. Are you hungry and thirsty for righteousness? And it's only when we're hungry like this, with this kind of desperation, that Jesus says we're gonna be satisfied. But how in the world can we be satisfied? What feast is gonna bring us out of this famine? That leads us to our third and last point this morning, which is the feast of righteousness. We've seen the form of it, that it's God. We've seen the famine of it, that we don't have it in us or around us. And last, we're gonna see the feast of righteousness. Now, you knew we were going here because I think you've heard me preach before. What feast will lead us out of this famine? Jesus. You knew we were gonna get there, right? We're going we're gonna to work this out in the years to come that we're getting to Jesus and it is Jesus. God satisfies us in Jesus. Listen to John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God satisfies us in Jesus. So first, let's look personally, how does God satisfy us in Jesus? Well, personally, he makes us what I'm going to call positionally righteous. He changes our position before him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is, Nathan said this word earlier, justification. God, if you are a believer in Jesus, God has justified you, and here's what that means. God forgives all of your sin, and he gives you the righteousness of Jesus. He takes away what makes us not right, and he gives us what makes us right. He provides for us a righteousness, what the reformers 500 years ago called an alien righteousness, something outside of us to make us right. It was nothing in us that God said, wait, there's something acceptable there. Let me kind of blow the embers and get this fire going again. No, God said, you're dead. I'm going to make you alive. Positionally in Jesus, we are righteous because God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. It's the great exchange of the gospel. Christ took all of our sin, and we get all of Christ's perfect record. That's the good news. You are righteous in Christ by faith alone. That's what Romans 4 and Galatians 3 are talking about. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. You're not expected to have a righteousness of your own. You just trust in Jesus for it. It is our faith that leads us to be so would you hunger and thirst for righteousness? God is not standing ready with a to-do list to say, great, I was waiting for you to ask. Here you go. Here's all the ways that you can begin to pursue. I mean, I think of the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, tongue-in-cheek, says, well, follow the commandments. 
You know him, right? And he says, <laughs> I've done those. <laughs> Great, go sell everything you have. Now, wait a minute. We, we can't do all the commit. We can't do enough. God's not saying, here's the list to become righteous. He's saying, I'm the righteous one. Come to me. Come to me. So he makes us positionally righteous, but he also makes us practically righteous. See, Galatians 2, there's a lot about justification there, like in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But Galatians 2 bleeds from justification over into the theological word for the Christian life, sanctification, growing in holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we come to Jesus, he makes us right now, instantaneously, God looks at us and says, you are righteous in my eyes. But if you've come to know Jesus, you know your behavior doesn't match that yet, right? You've learned that. You've lived a week as a Jesus follower, a day, an hour, a minute, and you go, okay, there's still something in me that doesn't trust the Lord. There's still sin in me. There's still rebellion. There's still things in me that are broken. Jesus loves you right where you are, and he loves you too much to leave you where you are. And so the rest of your life as a Jesus follower is growing in this, growing in actually living out righteousness. How do we live out righteousness? I live by faith in the Son of God. It's not me. It's Jesus in me and through me. So how are we satisfied with righteousness? Because of Jesus, in Jesus. And that's personally, but what about universal? I mean, we said earlier, we look around at the world. We look at the world and we're unsatisfied with the righteousness that the world is offering. So what's the hope there? Well, with the Beatitudes, we've said there's an everyday invitation and there's an eternal hope. Everyday invitation and eternal hope. And this universal righteousness that we long for is where the eternal hope comes in. We've been going to Revelation 21 over and over, looking forward to the new creation, where God makes everything new, right? We keep reading these verses, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, over and over and over. We're going to go to Revelation again, but our attention this week is going to be drawn to a couple chapters earlier. What is our longing for universal, worldwide, cosmic righteousness where everything conforms to God's will? There is nothing outside of it. There is nothing that has not been conformed perfectly to God. We don't live in that kind of world now, do we? What's our hope for it? Revelation chapter 19, 6 to 8. It's in the new creation. God brings his people together. And in verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the words of God. In the new creation, we look forward to the marriage supper of the lamb. He's mixing all these metaphors there. That Christ is like a groom and the church is 
his bride, and one day we'll be wedded together in perfect unity, face to face for all eternity. But he's the lamb who was sacrificed, the perfect sacrifice for us on our behalf. So here's what I think we see. How are we satisfied? As we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are filled today by feasting on Christ. And we will be filled one day when we feast with Christ. We are filled today when we feast on Christ. John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Come to me. And we will be filled and satisfied one day when we feast with him in the new creation. When everything's made new and we sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we see that Jesus has made everything new. That's the Revelation 21 where there's no more tears, no more sin, no more pain, no more brokenness, no more night because the glory of God is our light forever. So, What do we do with this? We've looked at the form that it's God. We've looked at the famine that we are lacking and we need our hunger stirred up. And then we've seen how we're filled with Jesus. Hallelujah, we've been brought to Jesus. And we see how he provides for us both today and on that day. So what do I do now? Well, I think this morning some may need to acknowledge their lack of righteousness. There may be some who need to acknowledge that for the very first time and take a step to Jesus in faith and place your trust in him for the very first time. You may need to say, you know what, I've been trying to patch together righteousness on my own like fig leaves and I identify when you talk about that and I recognize I can't do that. I need to be covered with Christ. And that may be you this morning but that could also be for believers. You may need to acknowledge your lack of righteousness You may need to acknowledge not just guilt, but also shame that you've been trying to cover. Blessed is the person who recognizes they don't have any righteousness in themselves. Blessed are you if you come to the end of the rope of your own righteousness. You're blessed. So come to God. Don't fear the shame. Don't try to cover yourself before you come. Come to God. Some need to acknowledge their lack of righteousness. Some of us may need to really hunger and thirst again, though. Remember that God's inviting us to come to him because he's the righteous one. He's not just inviting us to do something or to get something. It's not like there's God and there's us and then he's got righteousness that he's just like giving. He's righteous, so he wants us to come to him. So pick up on those implications. Righteousness is found in a relationship with Jesus. And some of us need to hunger and thirst again because we've lost that hunger and thirst just like the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter two. Revelation chapter two, verse four, Jesus is writing letters to churches and through John he says, to the church in Ephesus, we have the book, we have the letter, we know a lot about Ephesus. Go read Ephesians. It's all to the church at Ephesus and we see pretty cool things happening and that's such an incredible letter. But years down the road, here's what Jesus says to these same believers that we read about in Ephesians. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Can you identify? Say, man, I started strong on my walk with Jesus. 
And I feel like in the early days of my walk with Jesus, I did, I hungered, I thirsted. And sometimes in the early days, our emotions can carry us in our walk with Jesus. And we actually can be dependent on them so that when we're not as excited emotionally anymore to spend time with Jesus or to love Jesus, all of our disciplines come crashing down. And then we find years down the road, we're going, my, my hunger and my thirst, I feel like I need to hit refresh. That may be you this morning, I need to hit refresh. I need that hunger again. I, I need that thirst again. I, we just had an elders meeting on Wednesday night, and we, the tables were right here. I sat about right where Emory is, and we went around the circle and said, how are you? How is your family? How can we pray? And I said, guys, I've been in a season of spiritual dryness. I, I'm, I need my hunger and thirst refreshed because I don't want to come here and do this from an empty, dry heart. That's dangerous. Praise God, I mean, it was such a great time of being together and sharing and praying, they were so encouraging. But I'm there, I need my hunger refreshed. So what do we do when you find yourself in a place where you need your hunger and thirst refreshed? Well, Dallas Willard, uh, he would warn people against uh, what he would call believing in magic to change. Believing in magic is when you come to a place in scripture and it says, oh, do this, and you think, God, help me to do that, and then you move along, as if God's just gonna somehow magically get you to do that. He's like, you know, that's more magic than it is scripture. So now he's basically saying we need to be more specific. If God's telling us to obey, telling us to do something, inviting us into something, what are we gonna do? So what is it you can do to stir up your hunger and thirst for righteousness? I've got a few things for us. One is you could just embrace the first three Beatitudes. You could acknowledge that you're poor in spirit. You could honestly mourn the brokenness inside of you and around you. And then you can humble yourself before God like Justin preached last week. You could embrace the first three Beatitudes. Uh, you could pray about your hunger or your lack of hunger. Tell God exactly where you are. Do you find yourself hungry for him? Tell him, pray. Do you find yourself not hungry at all? Tell him. God is not waiting on you. God is not waiting on you to maintain a minimum level of righteousness and spiritual excitement to come to him. It is precisely when you dip below that imaginary line that you need him the most. But oftentimes in prayer, we think I've got to get my mind right. I can't be distracted. I've got to want him. I've got to get in the right mood. I've got to have it quiet. I've got to have, whatever that is for you, we think there's this standard we've got to have in prayer. And God is saying, would you come tell me? Like the psalmist who seems almost angry with God at times. So you can pray about your hunger or your lack of hunger. Begin to consistently tell God what you think about your hungers for him. Maybe, and here's, this is very specific. Maybe this week, each day, you say, God, I need to spend 10 minutes this week. Every day. And I'm gonna pray about my hunger for you. Whether it's, I'm hungry or whether I'm not. I'm gonna spend 10 minutes, I'm gonna pray. Maybe you say, I don't have 10 minutes worth of stuff to say. Wonderful. There's another spiritual discipline called silence. In which you sit in the presence of God and let him speak to your soul. But begin a conversation with God. Here's another one. Uh, in these Beatitudes, we see this blending of the spiritual and the physical, right? Poor in spirit. So we learn things from physical poverty, but he's talking about poverty and spirit, and we see them come together. It's the same with hunger and thirst. Maybe a discipline you could take up 
to refresh your hunger for God is you could fast. And that doesn't mean something big. And I mean, it could be one meal a week. You can say, you know what? I'm gonna fast from lunch one day this week. And as I feel physically hungry, I'm gonna pray that God uses that to teach me how to be spiritually hungry. You could fast. You, you, you could go without, it could be food, it could be a technology or social media or going without something that you crave and let that physical hunger remind you of the spiritual hunger that we ought to have. The last thing you could do is you, you really need to commit to gathering with a church family regularly and the same church family regularly. I'm so thankful I look out and I see so many just faithful. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Okay, my righteousness bell is going off. How do I stir that up? By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. If you find yourself lacking in righteousness, lacking in good works, lacking in love, the answer is not to get those built up before you come back. The answer is to come back in order to get those built up. You may need to commit to gathering with a church family because we need others. So, as we close this morning, are you hungry? Are you thoroughly dissatisfied with the righteousness inside of you and around you? Have you tried to make things right on your own? Have you given it, I mean, your best shot and found that it was still not enough? Well, this morning, Christ is inviting you to come to him and it is actually the perfect week to celebrate the Lord's Supper because Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, I'm living water. So this morning, we're gonna practically partake of this means of grace where when you come, you eat the bread and you drink the cup, we will be reminded together of Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us. And so one real application for us this morning is to come and partake of Christ by faith. If you don't know Christ and you were in that first group that says, I need to acknowledge my unrighteousness and I need to come to Christ by faith, your response this morning is not to come to the table, it's to come to Jesus. This table is for the celebration of those who know Christ. And if you don't know Christ yet, I, I would ask that you not take this yet, but I would ask that you please come to know Jesus. I would love to pray with you about that. I know our elders would feel the same. Matthew and Justin are in the back of the kids. Emery's here. You could talk to Nathan after service. Al is here. Please go talk to Ann, who's our women's ministry director. But let's get that right. Come to know Jesus. Don't wait until you've got it figured out. And for those of us who know Jesus this morning, as we approach the table, we can approach it with glad and thankful hearts, knowing that Christ has offered himself to fill our hunger for righteousness. So let's pray, and as I pray, the worship team is gonna come back up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, those, those early quotes there about <laughs> you being the highest, stand there's nothing above you. 
God, we can't conceive of anything higher than you or greater than you. You are the standard. You are holy. You are higher than the highest heavens, God. And you are worthy to be praised because of it. And when we look around and see the brokenness inside of us and around us, it makes us hungry for you to make things right. And I pray that that hunger would increase in this church family, God. I pray that we would be a church family that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Even if we don't always have it, even if we're struggling and we have sin in our life, which we will, Christ, you are blessing the desire for righteousness, not just the living out of it. We know the living out will come, but you've not asked us to worry about that. You've asked us to worry about the hunger, the desire. So would you please in our hearts right now send the Holy Spirit fresh and new to us to testify to us who we really are like Romans 8 says, the Spirit says to my spirit, Abba, Father. So we cry out to you, God, as our Father. And I pray as we approach the Lord's table this morning, God, we're thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus, especially as we begin this march towards Good Friday and Easter. Jesus, thank you for being willing to be the perfect sacrifice, to die the death we should have died, and to walk out of the grave, securing eternal life for those who put their faith in you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.